You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives us a great pleasure to host this seminar today on the topic of New Zealand and Sweden, distant but like-minded countries navigating a complex geopolitical landscape here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. I would in particular like to extend a warm welcome to Right Honorable Winston Peters, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs of New Zealand, and I would like to welcome Mr. Peters to the lecture. Mr. Peters was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs after the 2017 general election. Mr. Peter, this is Mr. Peters' second appointment as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mr. Peters is leader of the New Zealand First Party, which he formed in 1993. Mr. Peters has practiced law as a barrister and solicitor. He holds a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Law degrees. The seminar will be moderated by Dr. Björn Fagerstein, director of the Europe program here at the Institute. And with these short words of welcome, I would like to yield the floor to you, Mr. Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, members of the Institute of International Affairs, uh, distinguished guests, Yora, Anna Koto Katoa, which is in the native language of New Zealand, who are Pacific people in terms of the indigenous people who have been in my country for a thousand years, uh, but whose DNA 5,000 years ago came from mainland China. Uh, could I say greetings? And the fact that many of you living in Sweden must think that New Zealand is at the ends of the earth. It's not unexpected because it's a fact. And having traveled 33 hours to get here, you are right. We are about, we're about as far from Europe as you can travel, but that's just a matter of geographic separation. Uh, despite distance, we share many similar values uh, and experiences. And uh, our country's fate has always been closely tied to that of our friends on this continent. On Sunday, we will attend the Paris Peace Summit, which will mark 100 years since the guns fell silent at the end of the First World War. This is an anniversary which is rich in significance for New Zealand and for New Zealanders. We've paid a heavy price for our participation in both world wars and the losses and suffering we endured at Gallipoli, Passchendaele and elsewhere were deeply traumatic and helped forge us as a nation and as a people. Yet despite this distance from these conflicts and the heavy toll that they have exacted upon New Zealanders, we never flinched from making this sacrifice. And the question which has to be asked is why? It's because we have never viewed with indifference the clash of values and ideas playing out within Europe and on the wider world stage. And it's because despite our location, despite our difference in terms of uh, our backgrounds and despite our distance, we have always felt part of this greater world, deeply connected to our European family. And it's because despite our size, we've always felt it to be a responsibility and indeed a necessity to participate in the great struggles of our age. 
and in building and defending the kind of world we want to live in. Our closest partners in these endeavours have always been our friends and family in Europe. That is as true today as it has ever been. It's in awareness of this fact that New Zealand has taken a step of opening a resident embassy here in Stockholm in order to deepen its links with Sweden and uh, its Nordic neighbours. But why here and why now? To explain that, it might be useful to give you some historical perspective that is probably better known in New Zealand. New Zealand and the Nordic countries are not strangers after all. Indeed, travellers from the Nordic region were amongst the first Europeans to reach our shores. Next year, it'll be 250 years since Swedish botanist Daniel Solander accompanied Captain James Cook on his famous journey of discovery to New Zealand. Solander and his Finnish assistant Herman Sporing spent six months in New Zealand in 1769 on board Cook's ship, the Endeavour. During that time, he left his mark both through his contribution to observing and cataloguing New Zealand's unique flora and fauna, and in the Solander Islands, named after him off New Zealand's South Island. This was only the start of the important contribution Nordic travellers and settlers would make in the early years of New Zealand's colonial history. Perhaps the most famous example of this are the Scandinavian immigrants who cleared and settled large parts of the Lower North Island in the, 19, sorry, in the 1860s and the 1870s, stamping their imprint on communities such as Dunneberg and Norsewood that bear their name to this very day. New Zealand's foreign policy owes a great debt to its Nordic community. Our foreign ministry was in fact established in 1943 by a New Zealander of Swedish descent, Mr. Carl Berenson, who had previously served with distinction as Secretary of External Affairs and head of the Prime Minister's Department and Secretary of New Zealand's World War II War Cabinet. Berenson subsequently oversaw the establishment of New Zealand's first diplomatic missions outside the United Kingdom. Now, given how closely aligned New Zealand and its Nordic friends are on most global issues, it's perhaps fitting that it was a Swede who helped New Zealand take our first steps towards establishing our fiercely independent foreign policy of today. Indeed, there are few countries anywhere in the world that are as close to us in terms of values and how we see the world as Sweden and its Nordic neighbours. Domestically, we both enjoy high standards of governance, consistently taking out the top spots in international surveys reflecting transparency, and there I said, in the political setting, the absence of corruption. We both lead the world in most global measures of equality, peacefulness, personal freedom, and respect for human rights. We have both been trailblazers in terms of social justice. You may know that New Zealand was the first country in the world where women achieved the vote in 1893. We marked the 125th anniversary of this milestone this year. Nordic countries have also been global leaders on gender empowerment. And given the leadership Nordic nations have shown in providing for the poor and vulnerable in their societies, it may interest you to know 
that New Zealand created the first comprehensive welfare state in the 1930s. Both of us have also applied this value-driven approach or values-driven approach on the global stage, often in partnership with each other. We share similar worldviews on almost all global issues, including trade, the environment, human rights, disarmament, security and adherence to the international rules-based system of which we are amongst the strongest supporters of the global-based rule system itself. We are instinctive and active multilateralists who are unafraid to stand up for what we believe in. New Zealand and Sweden have been at the forefront of efforts to demand the elimination, for example, of nuclear weapons. We're both active contributors to international peace and security, including as mediators, regular contributors to peace operations, and as principled participants on the United Nations Security Council. Given our close alignment of values and perspectives, it's only natural that we should do more together, both bilaterally and on the global stage. This was clear to me in 2008 when in my previous term as Minister of Foreign Affairs, New Zealand's first embassy in Stockholm was opened, a decision that was unfortunately reversed by the next government as a result of budget cuts and their response to the global financial crisis, which, as I said last night, was not a global financial crisis at all, uh, but a way of excusing the corruption of Wall Street. But events since then have only reinforced further why countries like New Zealand, Sweden and its Nordic neighbours need to be working more closely together. States like us have much to lose from global instability and the disregard of rules. And frankly, those countries that are democratic have got to spend far more time defending the soundness and the wisdom and the uniqueness and indeed the beauty of being a democracy. In times like these, when multilateralism is under threat, when our values of fairness, equality and respect for human rights are being increasingly challenged and when formerly once trading nations are increasingly turning to protectionism, we need to be prepared to fight for our values. And we need to deepen our cooperation with friends who share these values. And so today is a time to highlight a number of areas where the opening of this embassy is a de demonstration of our shared values, which is why we did that last night. First, we need to cooperate more closely on asserting our values and tackling key issues on the global stage. Foremost amongst this is the critical issue of climate change. Both Sweden and New Zealand have taken the significant step of, sig of committing ourselves to achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. There is much we can learn from each other as we work to meet these very ambitious targets and to encourage others to play their part. We also want to intensify our cooperation through the Global Research Alliance to seek long-term solutions to the challenge of reducing agricultural emissions whilst increasing production to meet the needs of a growing global population. There's much we can do together in championing open, rules-based trade, both in the WTO and bilaterally. And we surely all know that the WTO right now is under serious threat.
At the same time, we want to work with you to promote trade policies that ensure that trade benefits are shared amongst all members in our societies and that support our broad social and environmental goals, for example, by imposing disciplines on harmful fossil fuel subsidies. We also want to explore how we might work more closely together in promoting international peace and security. And the recent cooperation between New Zealand and Sweden, securing back-to-back -back terms on the United Nations Security Council, demonstrated what a natural partnership this can be. We supported Sweden with its campaign and preparations for membership. We were pleased to see, to see Sweden take up many of the issues and initiatives that we had sought to champion. And we have admired the energy, integrity and skill with which Sweden has acquitted itself as a member. We are also reliable friends and partners to each other in our respective regions. New Zealand is deeply grateful for the advice and support we have received from Sweden, Denmark and Finland as we seek to strengthen our relations and practical cooperation with the European Union. In turn, New Zealand has much to share from its knowledge of East Asia. We provide a natural partner for those seeking to engage with the region given our deep integration in regional architecture, including through our extensive networks of free trade agreements with Asia-Pacific countries. New Zealand has also much to offer in terms of its knowledge and experience of the Pacific. Now, the Pacific may seem distant, but it's a strategically, seriously important and increasingly contested space. And it's a region that welcomes the positive and constructive contribution made by its European partners. It's important that this continues. But it's in our bilateral cooperation that the greatest potential lies. Given our close alignment of values and perspectives, there's considerable scope for mutually beneficial dialogue and cooperation on domestic policy issues. There is much we can learn from each other in areas such as social policy, climate change, and innovation. And we are barely scratching the surface of the potential in our trade and investment relationships. Two-way trade in goods between New Zealand and the Nordic countries amounts to 756 million New Zealand in 2017, and trade in services was slightly more at 868 million for the year ending March 2018. Our companies are already starting to prospect the opportunities. You know something, H&M have two outlets in New Zealand and counting, and New Zealanders would welcome the arrival of an IKEA store as soon as possible. In Sweden system, uh, Bologet uh, stores uh, stock some very fine New Zealand wines. It's a start, but we can do much, much better. There's considerable scope for growth both in traditional areas, such as machinery, cars and agricultural products, as well as in new areas such as the digital economy, agri-tech and the services sector, notably IT, health, tourism, education and public procurement. This isn't just about lifting trade volumes. It's about forging mutually beneficial partnerships, drawing on our respective strengths. Sweden and its Nordic neighbours are also amongst the most innovative and technologically advanced countries in the world. As a region, you represent one of the largest investors in industrial research 
and development in the world. We're enthusiastic partners with you in these endeavours. Technology is New Zealand's fastest growing sector and our highest earning industry per capita. There are numerous examples where collaboration between New Zealand and Nordic companies are already succeeding. Swedish company ABB is paving the way for the electrification of our vehicle fleet by setting up a network of electronic car charging points throughout New Zealand. Norwegian company Tomra's recent purchase of New Zealand's uh, Compaq has taken Compaq's advanced post-harvest fruit sorting technology to the world, massively improving efficiency and reducing waste for a global customer base. Now, many of you have heard of New Zealand's dairy company Fonterra, one of the world's largest dairy exporters. But few of you will know that Volvo supply 92% of Fonterra's fleet milk collection trucks, with Scania providing the remaining 8%. That's 100%. And any boy on a New Zealand farm, or girl for that matter, remembers Alpha Labal being the biggest supplier in every dairy farm New Zealand-wide. Given our complementary economies, such links can only grow. New Zealand boasts one of the best business environments in the world, having been consistently ranked number one in the world for ease of doing business by the World Bank, as well as second in annual prosperity index and third in the income freedom index. This year, Sweden knocked us from the top spot for ease of doing business. And it's also first to our second on the Global Sustainable Competitiveness Index. Further evidence of just how alike we are and what natural and valuable partners we make. New Zealand also offers opportunities in the fast-growing economies of the Asia-Pacific through our extensive network of high-quality free trade arrangements and agreements in the region. We were the first developed country in the world to sign a free trade agreement with China in 2008, and the only country with trade agreements with China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. The recently adopted Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement also provides access to 11 of the region's most dynamic and prosperous economies. The EU NZFTA would be an important step towards unlocking the potential in our trade and economic relationship with Sweden and with the EU as a whole. We are very grateful for the strong support we have received from Sweden, Denmark and Finland to date with respect to our access to the EU. Now that negotiations are finally underway, we hope we can move quickly to conclude a comprehensive and high quality agreement without delay. This agreement also provides a chance to demonstrate what can be achieved between two partners committed to progressive and inclusive trade policies. It's fitting that the reopening of the New Zealand Embassy in Stockholm should coincide with the 250th anniversary of the arrival of the first Swedes in my country. In opening this embassy, we both celebrate our deep and enduring ties and begin charting a new course for our future partnership. This partnership should and will be firmly grounded in our shared values and worldview. There should be no limit to what we might seek to achieve together. Can I just say as a diversion, when we make these speeches about the reason why we should work together, 
we should understand the heightened change and challenges we face right now in 2018. It's time for countries that have stood up for democracy and for human rights to realise that the challenge will not just be met by our continuing how we used to behave, but we've got to heighten our cooperation in every respect so that we might triumph in this endeavour and not merely be competitors against untoward events happening around ourselves. So on behalf of the New Zealand Coalition Government, we look forward to you all connecting with Ambassador Jenks, who's here today. Uh, <laughs> and his team in the coming weeks to share ideas and experiences. And that soon we will see the benefits of our revived partnership. Personally, I've long believed that wise governments in cold climates create great economies. I have long believed that wise governments in cold climates create great economies. Sweden and the Nordic countries are evidence of that. You see, in cold climates, mistakes are hugely costly. And that caution clearly shapes political thinking here. We want to learn from that. We live in a subtropical land with snow and skiing on the bottom half of the North Island and the South Island and bananas growing the top half of the North Island. And finally, to all who have asked whether New Zealand regrets its decision to close its diplomatic presence here in Stockholm, having opened it in 2008, my answer to you is this, in the words, as I said last night, of that great ABBA song. Now, you'll remember ABBA, won't you? Even the youngest of you. It is the, uh, it's the uh, singing group that still holds the record for selling music in my country. Remember the song? I've been broken-hearted, blue since the day we parted. Why, why did we ever let you go? That's what we asked ourselves and explains why we're here with you today. Thank you very much. So, Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Peters, thank you very much for your both historic and current insights, as well as other quotes. Uh, now, we have a very distinguished uh, panel who will, will comment on your speech and perspectives. We have Ms. Cecilia Rustram-Ruin, who is the ambassador and head of the Department for Asia and the Pacific at the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She's also a PhD from Lund University. Very glad to have you here. And we have Agneta Dreber, Deputy Chairman uh, of the Board of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. You have a long and distinguished background of public service in several policy fields, and you're also a great friend of New Zealand. I would like to welcome you both up on the stage. Who would you like to start? Thank you very much for, for uh, inviting me here today. It's a great honor, and in particular in the presence of uh, Honorable Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters, to thank you and share uh, the delight of having a new embassy opened. For every diplomat, we know that this is really a day of, of celebration. I have to say that I was <coughs> quite struck and also touched by your speech. It is quite remarkable that two countries which are so geographically distant, with such uh, different historical perspectives, have ended up 
creating such similarities in societies, in how we organize ourselves, in, in our outlooks internationally. So we are really perfect partners. Minister, uh, you, I quote you when you said, we share similar outlooks on almost all global issues. And we really share that view. The speech that you gave could really have been prepared by my ministry. So uh, commenting on it will, will really be mostly agreeing. Uh, although we do have different perspectives. And let me also emphasize that while you have an in enhanced interest in cooperation with this region, uh, demonstrated by uh, your opening of, a, of an embassy here again, we share a similar interest and uh, need to enhance our cooperation with the Asia-Pacific region. This is an interest and a need that we share with the rest of Europe. So, so this is a very timely uh, uh, opening of your embassy. Um, this is a juncture in time and in history where when cooperation between those of us who really do share values, who are like-minded, is perhaps more needed than in a very, very long time. Uh, the world faces many pressing global challenges that can only be, be met together, but we, just as you, are instinctive multilateralists, and we do uh, firmly believe that this can only be done if we work together and in a way based on rules and international rules. Um, so I think when I start working with Ambassador Jenks, I will be the first entry point. I have already met him in a beautiful outfit uh, when he was on his way to our king to present his credentials. But we will work in, on an everyday basis. And one of our challenges will obviously be how to pick among all these uh, needs and all these opportunities that we have for cooperation. So uh, let me just give you my three three issues pick of the most important areas, which you have, of course, all, all uh, mentioned. Uh, the first one is what we have been calling the defense of multilateralism. But just as you, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, we do believe that it is probably time for an offensive approach on this one. We need to step up our fight uh, in this regard. As we speak here today, there will be a debate in the UN Security Council on the strengthening of uh, multilateralism based on the United Nations. And this is our message. We need to step up uh, our uh, work and we need to do so together with those who are sharing our values. Um, secondly, trade. Just as New Zealand, Sweden is very concerned looking at the protectionist trends that we have seen over recent years, the distrust between important actors in the multilateral trading system, the challenges to the, the trading system based on the WTO. Uh, and this anti-free trade rhetoric is not only talk now, it, it's really uh, uh, leading to action. And here we need to step up cooperation, but also further develop the opportunities that we do have for bilateral agreements on enhancing trade. As you know, Sweden is one of the staunchest supporters of uh, a quick, uh, work on uh, entering into a free trade agreement. We were very glad that uh, Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström was visiting your country in June this year, and, and this is a uh, highest priority for, for our country as well. Third, uh, climate and the environment. New Zealand has done a very important job also raising 
awareness in the UN system and in the multilateral system. We are also trying to do our share in this regard. And in this regard, we are also in increasingly focusing on your region. Uh, since 2016, Sweden has a regional development cooperation uh, program for the Asia-Pacific, focusing in particular on climate-related threats uh, in the Pacific region. Uh, we organized last year a big oceans conference in the United Nations, the first ever together with Fiji, focusing a lot on the uh, challenges uh, hitting in particular the Pacific. This is an area where we are really keen to work uh, with you. We know that it will be very easy to work, and we know that because we are already working so well together in so many areas. I, I, it would take too much time to pick all the examples. We are, for instance, good partners in a group on de-alerting of nuclear weapons currently. We are working on, on fossil fuels issues. And we do so so easily because we have similar ways of working. Our companies, they report to us that when they go to New Zealand, it's so easy to find business partners because we have similar business cultures. Somehow, we find it easy to work together uh, uh, and have similar cultures in, in approaching the work. So um, on that basis, I'm very confident that we will find very good ways of working together and uh, Deputy Prime Minister, you ended with a song, so let me perhaps end with a personal uh, experience sharing with you my first encounter with New Zealand. Unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to visit your country, but the first time I met New Zealand uh, was a choir encounter. I'm, as many Swedes, I'm a, a, I'm a very active choir singer. Uh, we went to a big... Uh, festival, 5,000 singers from all over the world with my youth choir. Uh, music is a good way of uniting people, but we all have a little bit tr different tr traditions. But among all these 5,000 singers, suddenly a love story arose between my Swedish choir and a New Zealand youth choir from Ch Christchurch. Our voices were perfect matches. Our ways of approaching music was absolutely similar. Very quickly, our, our choir leaders realized that this, this is a match in heaven, so we developed our own concert program, which we preserved, uh, performed uh, uh, to a great success. And I think that what made us so similar was not only that our voices were similar, we had the same way of listening. You know, that choir singer is not so much, you, you're not supposed to hear your own voice. You're supposed to be able to listen in order to uh, formulate a strong, united sound. And this is what we managed to do. And this uh, experience I carried with me my whole life, whenever I meet a New Zealander, I know that we will be able to sing the same tune. And I very much look forward to doing that with Ambassador Jenks and the, his team. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Cecilia Rusunrin. I'm very much looking forward to future events here where you will sing with the <laughs> ambassador. And now over to uh, Agneta Dreber, please. Thank you. And I would also like to thank you, Deputy Prime Minister, for a very interesting speech. And I was also touched by it, like you were. Uh, and I think it's amazing that two countries which are so far from each other as uh, New Zealand and Sweden Actually, it is as far as you can get from each other that we can be so similar. We do have very many things in common, and we're both uh, 
small countries, egalitarian, with similar welfare programs. The biggest difference, I think, between New Zealand and Sweden is the climate, because it's much more temperate and even in New Zealand than it is here. And uh, today, I think it's about uh, 1,200 Swedes who live in New Zealand, and I think it's because the, of the climate. And one of them actually is my brother, who is the uh, honorary consul of Sweden in Auckland. So I have had a chance to go there four times, and I haven't stopped going there. I will go again. Uh, and uh, also, when I talk about 1,200 per Swedes living there, there are another 800 every year who are there. So it's uh, al always 2,000 Swedes in New Zealand, one could say. And it's about 10,000 New Zealanders who have a Swedish descendants. And uh, as you said, all the Swedish major companies are represented in New Zealand. Electrolux, Ericsson, Husqvarna are household names. And ABB, Alfa Laval, Tetra Pak, SKF, Volvo and Scania, they are very well known. And it's really thrilling, I think, to see IKEA coming. But I wonder where it's going to be. But you don't know that yet, I guess. I guess if it's Auckland or if it's Wellington, if it's the southern island. Uh, and uh, also, we have, uh, I have, um, from my point of view, seen that now the uh, negotiations with the, about the FGA with the European Union has started. And I do think that this will make a possibility for Sweden and New Zealand to strengthen its ties even more. And uh, the European Union is actually the third biggest trading partner for New Zealand. And... Uh, we, and other interesting facts about New Zealand is that it is the world leading, as you also said about Fonterra, when it comes to the dairy production. And uh, just to see what other uh, differences there are between Sweden and New Zealand, I looked up the number of cows in New Zealand. And uh, you, you hardly can believe this, but there are 5.8 million cows in New Zealand. And just to give you a reference then, in Sweden we have 378,000 cows. Although we have 10 million inhabitants in Sweden, whereas New Zealand has about 4.4, I think. So you have more cows than inhabitants. And that goes also for the sheep. And actually, if you go back a few decades, you used to have like 60 million sheep. But today it's only 32 million. I think these figures are so huge and so interesting. And when it comes to pigs, though, I don't think it's that much. It's like uh, 578,000. We have, we have not many pigs anymore in Sweden either. Uh, but a very, a very impressive development, I think, is the wine industry, where you have sustainable wine growing. And uh, New Zealand has actually the most eastern and the most southern vineyards on earth. Uh, as it's uh, uh, in the east, it's Gisborne Nord. Nord is that the name? Mm. No, it's the Gisborne, and in south, it's the central Otago. And the most grown grape is Sauvignon Blanc, which I think we all know. And um, the but the Pinot Noir is actually coming very quickly. I personally love Sauvignon Blanc in the Stonely Sauvignon Blanc. If, if you haven't tried it, please do. Uh, so I want actually to conclude this by congratulating us, Sweden, that you have chosen to put a resident embassy in Stockholm. 
I think that's just wonderful. Of course, I also want to congratulate you for doing that. But when I, uh, 20 years ago, applied for my daughter to get a visa for studying at Christine School in Auckland, we had to turn to The Hague, because that was, at that time, the closest embassy for, for us in Sweden. So I will, by this, also give my congratulations to Andrew Jenks, and I hope you will feel very welcome in Sweden and that we will meet again. Thank you. Agneta Dreber, uh, thank you for your both uh, political, cultural, and political uh, references. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Peters, is there anything you want to comment or pick up on from, from these perspectives? Um, well, just to make it very clear that uh, we did have a lot of sheep, that's a fact. <laughs> good. And we have got a lot of cows. But what we can learn in terms of the Swedish economy, and indeed the Nordic economy, is to supplement uh, cow numbers with added value for the product. So we can downsize our numbers and upsize our returns. And we know that here we can learn a whole lot. So we sell milk, milk at the top of the market, not as, uh, well, how should I put it? Our mistake was to uh, sell one product, milk powder, through one company, Fonterra, to one market, China. We are learning very fast that we need to uh, have a smarter added value approach to that and it will also help us mitigate some of our climate change problems. Thank you, Fred. Uh, I should say to the audience that there will be opportunity to ask uh, questions to Mr. Peter, so please raise your hands or indicate if you have a question. Then I'll, I'll make sure that there's a microphone heading your way. Yes, please. Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Björn Kimberg. I think it's wonderful. Uh, how is it possible that you excel um, like this and no one has mentioned the rugby team? <laughs> Sorry. We're also famous, sir, for our modesty. <laughs> <laughs> One question down here first. I think we start down here. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Hans Magnusson, former ambassador. Thank you very much, Mr. Prime Minister, for a very positive presentation. I would uh, wonder if you could reflect a bit on the... Um, how you view the policies of China and the role of China and your relations with, with China, because obviously very much in focus all over the world. Well, can I say that uh, we were, I think, um, we were the first country to actually recognize uh, modern China as in, uh, between governments way back in the early 70s. We've tried to get on with China and cooperate and work with China, uh, both with respect to Asia and in the Pacific and elsewhere, on the basis that, um, how shall I say it, uh, by promoting our values 
and asking that when we are working on cooperation, that those values be the central point of the combined programs, so to speak. Uh, second thing is, I, I believe that uh, New Zealand as a government and as a people have had a significant respect for China and in the modern context, because when you take people from seclusion, reclusion, to into the modern world, in the speed with which they are doing it, um, the question you have to ask yourself is, is human rights, or are human rights, or are democratic principles, and are these other, or are these other things so important when, for example, you have to take 160 million people in states' uh, enterprises and put them onto the marketplace as they had to do 25, 30 years ago. 160 million people being shifted from state enterprises to some modern economy is a massive challenge, the dimensions of which we've never had to, in my country, uh, even contemplate. That said, um, we always hoped that economic freedom would bring political freedom as well, which has been the, uh, not a myth, but a belief that we thought would happen. But it has not, uh, in that context. Uh, we're all trying to reconfigure how we should deal with modern China. And because of the market imperative of their consumerism of our product, it's a very good, delicate issue for my country. But that said, um, uh, we encourage China to play by the rules. We, we encourage China to respect human rights to respect uh, fundamental, uh, the fundamental rules-based system. Not a system that you recognize when it suits you and one when it doesn't, and, and not when it doesn't, but all the time. Um, with the, in this international environment, I'd be best to answer you and say it's a work in progress. My name is Mats Felt, and I have a daughter who has been uh, slaving in the vineyards of New Zealand. Uh, 45 minutes, the first time 20 minutes, the second time a quarter of an hour, she realized that there were insects in the vineyards and she didn't like that, so she went on doing other things. But she loves New Zealand anyway. anyway. Uh, my question pertains to the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr. George Osborne, and he was commenting on the Brexit drama and he said once, at least once, that yes, it's very good to have a free trade agreement with New Zealand. Maybe it's not enough for the UK to have a free trade agreement with New Zealand, because there's a limit to how much the UK can trade with little New Zealand. But uh, what's your comment on that? Will you get the quickest free trade agreement in the world when breakfast, Brexit is in order and organized and finished? Well, I know I'm here um, talking to an EU country. And we've been knocking on the door for the EU for decades, uh, particularly since we opened up our economy on the 14th of July, 1984, to the whole world, thinking that you'd all, see, you'd all see the wisdom of this and play by the rules, but no one did. In short, everybody could trade with us and nobody wanted to take our products, particularly countries like Korea, for example. I'll just give you a true story. I was in, North, in South Korea in uh, 2007, I think it was, talking to the Prime Minister, sorry, the President of South Korea, whose name was pronounced no. 
So uh, I began by saying to my country, on a free trade agreement, we want you to become president. Yes. Uh, anyway, I laid out my uh, request. Foreign Affairs had put me up to it, although I'm not the Minister for Trade. So I asked him for this, for a free trade agreement, and he said to me something quite extraordinary, but Mr Peters, what's in it for us? And I thought, well, he's got me there because he's got total access to my market. We've got no access to theirs under huge levies. So in a fit of pique, I said to him, sir, when your country was fighting for its very career and for its very life and freedom, my country came and put our soldiers on the line for you. And when your currency collapsed in 1997, when the Thai baht fell out of bed and your currency collapsed as well, we are one of nine countries that underwrote your, underwrote your economy, uh, your finance, your currency. And what's in it for you, for you? It's called gratitude and a thing called respect. And he said to Mr. Peters, I'll send you a, a, a press statement tomorrow morning say I'm for, saying I'm for a free trade agreement. Now, Mr. Osborne doesn't realise, and he should have realised a long time ago, that you can have both. Uh, the Commonwealth of 52 countries is comprised of 2.2 billion people with an average uh, GDP growth of over 5.5%. But, of course, uh, Britain walked out on us one time now they want back. True, it's a, it's a true story, but uh, when Mr. Osborne says that, it is clear as daylight that the British establishment was utterly prepared for the, the outcome of Brexit on 23rd of June uh, 2016. So it happened, and they're all bewildered, particularly in the Conservative Party, which is the government. I don't know where we go from there. All I know is that for a country like the, the UK, they should have been much better prepared in both respects to the EU, which they must exit by March next year, and where they go from there. Now, the good news is that their friend, the former friend New Zealand, is prepared to help them because we've been out there trying to trade with everybody as hard as we can go. And for a small country, we're seriously well prepared and we're one of the key players in the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, um, my name is Gabriel Johnson and I'm from Stockholm University. I have two questions. Uh, first, um, during the years it has been pointed out as a weakness for the New Zealand economy that the country is uh, excessively dependent on agricultural products. Can you comment uh, upon that if it's still a weakness? And secondly, uh, since um, uh, it was just mentioned that the uh, uh, um, priority area for cooperation is multilateralism. I wonder what uh, the two countries can, can do considering that uh, Donald Trump is uh, uh, um, bilateralism and opposing um, national cooperation. Very much. Um, can I deal with the second question, uh, that is the American, uh, with the unusual haircut? There's something about what Mr. Trump is saying, you know, which uh, Sweden and New Zealand understand. We prosecute trade to advantage all of our population, everybody within our country. In short, uh, we do not prosecute trade for the multinationals. We prosecute trade to advantage 
our lowliest and our middle income and the biggest part of our population we can. That's the modern new understanding of New Zealand, which is behind the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's why the negotiations which were collapsing changed uh, after the last government uh, in, when New Zealand was involved, so that Japan, who had been very reluctant, in the end joined and became leaders of it. In short, we believe global trade should uplift every citizen, not just a few. Uh, and aspects of uh, what I might call multi-international uh, corporates, where the people get lost and forgotten, are not what I believe Sweden does, nor we want to do as a country either. In that respect, um, there's something that Mr. about what Mr. Trump is saying, which is somewhat similar. He's saying a trade must be for the American people's benefit as well, not just the American multinationals. And you've got to remember, one of the serious arguments that was happening at the US Congress was the inability of Congress to be in control of those arrangements, but a, a appointed court of the TPP that would decide, separate from politicians. Uh, there's something sinister about it now. That's where our similarities begin and end, in case you get the wrong impression from what I'm saying. Now, <laughs> the second thing about our dependence on agriculture, it's not our dependence on agriculture, it was our dependence on lack of value uh, product in agriculture. If you're selling sheep products at the top of the line, if you're selling uh, dairy products at the top of the line, if you're selling, uh, for example, into one of the greatest markets in this world is the infant formula business, between 45 and $50 billion. We failed to get ourselves in that business as fast as we could have, given that we grow the best milk in the world. Uh, from grass, that is, uh, and the high-protein grass. Uh, we didn't get the control or be a major player as fast as we should have been the infant formula business, which is one of our great regrets. It's not an either-or situation. Not in the world's growing population requiring food and top-quality food. But we, uh, one of the reasons why we are here right now, starting out in Sweden and hope to, hopefully to be joined up with the Nordic countries, is we've got a lot to learn from uh, the Nordic countries about top quality added value. So it's somewhat selfish, if I might put it that way, uh, <laughs> but it's real. It's not an over-dependency, it's just um, the fact is we've been through the theory that the whole world was going to change and that agriculture was a sunset business. That's a theory that was around 35 years ago. Food will never be a sunset business. Um, Mr. Peter, just a follow-up question. You were asked about uh, Brexit and, and the New Zealand's relations to the UK, but I wonder, you are now in a country that is very much adjusting its EU strategy in the face of Brexit. We need uh, new allies, uh, new strategies, etc. Are you in the same boat? You also need to rethink your EU and European uh, strategy after Brexit. Well, it's confusing because uh, we've got to... Um hopefully get the best we can out of the UK um, because it's a, it's a new market that we were denied access to because of the European Union. At the same time, uh, you might find it somewhat, somewhat schizophrenic that we're having to deal with the European Union as well. But I suppose one of the messages that we're trying to put to the European Union is this. The European Union is 
common because not of trade, but because of democracy. If you want to defend democracy, then as many strong democracies economically as you possibly have got is the only chance we have. I mean, our message to the United States is if you want us to defend where we are in the Pacific, in this huge blue continent, spread across half, of, nearly all of Europe and half of Africa in terms of size, you're going to have to help us because we can't do it all by ourselves. And it goes for the European Union as well. And my view is that democratic countries should help each other economically as quickly as they possibly can and not take the Philistines' view that wherever the market or the trade deal can be done doesn't really matter. It does matter to us. Maybe I'm being a bit romantic about the issue, but I kind of think it's the new, clear and present danger and that we've got to see the big picture of what we do in a responsible way. We want to promote, we want to promote great values, a uh, global rules-based system. We want to promote fairness, we want to promote equality, we want to promote democracy, then it has a serious economic dimension. Our, our time is, is soon running up. I would like to ask the panelists, do you have any final comments or reflections after hearing the discussion? I would just like to underline what you're saying about the food and food value and the added value that you are developing in such a rapid way. Uh, uh, such so rapidly, I think it's very important. I do, I do think it's not uh, it's not a coincidence that you actually are the you stand for one third of the international trade of dairy products, and that's really huge figures. And I, as you said, the, the possibility of that are in China and also the other countries nearby are really important. And could I just ask you one question too? I noted that you have 200,000 Chinese living in New Zealand. Are, are, and I guess many of them have their own businesses and small companies. Do you, can you see that they can be of help when you open up or try to open up for more trade with China? Uh, that was the theory. Um, the reality has been somewhat different uh, because a number of New Zealand's Chinese came from Taiwan and there is still the huge um, uh, situation of uh, Taiwan being a, a government that is um, recognized by a number of countries, but not by as many as they would like it to be. Then you have China, who hate the phrase main, mainland China, I might add. We have China to deal with as well, so it's very, very difficult for us. Uh, and the China, sorry, the Taiwanese immigration background is very different from the mainland China immigration background. The China, the China uh, immigration background is a population who are awfully cautious about what Beijing might think. So much so that you will not pick up a Chinese magazine with a word of criticism on any matter to do with uh, Beijing. It's a bit of a phenomenon, really. You will not get that out of Hong Kong. You will not get it out of uh, Taiwan, but you certainly get it out of mainland China. Now, it's a reality we just have to live with. Uh, has it been good? Well, they're an industrious, hard-working people. And in that context, it's been certainly good for us, yes.
Thank you very much. Just uh, perhaps one comment also from my side on uh, China. And I noted, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, when you said that you have to reconfigure how you deal with China, which is a delicate challenge for you and for Sweden and Europe, uh, our uh, increasing engagement with uh, China, but which also in, in includes a lot of challenges, is one of the areas where we see uh, a lot of uh, need for dialogue with uh, countries such as New Zealand, who do have, have a very strong experience uh, in dealing uh, with, uh, with China, which is, after all, a stronger trading partner and has a stronger presence in your country. Uh, and I believe that is also very much linked to the questions on the multilateral system, because we, of course, are also seeing how China is increasing its engagements and, and ambitions in the multilateral cooperation, uh, which is very welcome. We can only, uh, we can only solve our global challenges by, by cooperating, but those of us who do share similar interests and values need to step up our cooperation. So precisely because of, of these challenges uh, that are posed from, uh, from different sides, this is one of the main reasons why it is so important that we uh, uh, work even more closely than we have been doing in the past. And we very much look forward to doing so. And we can see that having your continued presence here through an embassy with, uh, with further facilitate and, and pave the way for, for such cooperation. Could I just say one thing? There's a dynamic new set of circumstances. It's, it's, it's not even a year old. That's happening in the Indo-Pacific, which includes Japan, which includes Southeast Asia. There's a dynamic which even would reach into Pakistan. So whatever people have been perceiving there is not what it is today. And it's fluid and it's moving with great speed. So you see a disconnected Japan of 18 months ago seriously back engaged now. It's in that context I'd like you to see our part of the world uh, because um, when push comes to shove, some of the values you have are the ones that they aspire to now. Deputy Prime Minister, thank you very much for, for this discussion, ranging from the geopolitical to the economical and the, the cultural. It's been very nice having you here. I, my sister lives in, in New Zealand with her family, and it's, uh, we try to arrange Skype calls between the, the kids, and it's quite difficult with the time distance. And my four-year-old commented the other day that New Zealand is funny. Either they always eat breakfast or they're always going to bed. <laughs> now, uh, the, the time difference is something that your new ambassador cannot do anything about, I'm afraid, but I'm sure there's lots of other issues that we can work on. So thank you very much for coming to the Institute today, and uh, congratulations also to your new embassy and to the ambassador. So thank you very much, and thank you to the audience as well. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.